Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings and welcome to a new episode of New Books Network. Today is September 1st, 2023. My name is Joaquin Rivaya Martinez. I am an associate professor of history at Texas State University and will be the host of this interview. Today we will be chatting with historian Jana Yanakakis about her book, Since Time Immemorial, Native Custom and Law in Colonial Mexico, which was published by Duke University Press this year in 2023. Good morning from Texas and welcome to New Books Network. Dr. Yanakakis. Is it okay if I call you Yana? Of course. Good Excellent. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Yana Yanakakis is professor of history at Emory University. She holds a PhD in Latin American history from the University of Pennsylvania, and her research brings together Mesoamerican ethnohistory and legal history. Apart from the book that we're discussing today since time immemorial, um, she's the author of the Art of Being in Between, Native Intermediaries, Indian Identity, and Local Rule in Colonial Oaxaca, also published by Duke University Press in 2008. She's also co-editor with Gabriela Ramos of Indigenous Intellectuals, Knowledge, Power, and Colonial Culture in Colonial Mexico and the Andes, also published by Duke in 2014. And she's also co-editor with Luis Alberto Arrioja Díaz Viruel and Martinez Rader Nifki, of Los Indios Ante la Justicia Local, Intérpretes, Oficiales y Litigantes en Nueva España y Guatemala, siglos XVI al XVIII, published by El Colegio de Michoacán in 2019. Among the many articles that she has published, uh, there is one that she co-authored with Bianca Premo, titled A Court of Sticks and Branches, Indian Jurisdiction in Colonial Mexico and Beyond, which was published in the American Historical Review in 2019. She's also project coordinator of an ongoing open access digital humanities project called Power of Attorney, Native People, Legal Culture, and Social Network, Networks in Mexico. Her research has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Mellon Foundation. She teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in Latin American history, advises doctoral students, and serves on multiple editorial boards. Do you have any, any spare time at all? Uh, you know, I try. Yes. (laughs) All right. A little. Tell us a a little bit about yourself. So for instance, how did you become a historian? Well, you know, I came, I became a historian a little bit late in the game. Um, you know, I, uh, became interested in Latin America when I did an internship as a college student, um, for Amnesty International's refugee office in San Francisco. And I worked primarily on Guatemalan and Salvadoran asylum cases. And that was in the 1980s, so a long time ago. And then when I graduated, I worked um, in the Central America Solidarity Movement for the Network and Solidarity of the People of Guatemala. So I did that for a number of years. Um, I was a high school teacher for a while, but then wanted to return to my interest in Latin America. So um, I ended up... uh, going back to grad school. And uh, at first I thought I would work in Guatemala, but uh, my advisor at the time, Nancy Ferris, suggested working in Oaxaca, which is kind of close by, um, also with a very large indigenous population. I was especially interested in um, indigenous history. Uh, So uh, that's how it all began. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned Nancy Ferris. Uh, Were there any other influential mentors or other figures uh, relevant in your early career? 
Yes, indeed. Um, you know, I also uh, was mentored by Anne Farnsworth Alvear, who is uh, a historian of um, modern Colombia, and uh, Dan Richter, who is an ethno-historian of North America and was very influential as well. Um, I've also, you know, had the benefit of informal mentorship from people like Susan Kellogg, whose work I really admire, and the imprint of her work is very evident um, in right. the book. Yeah. Right, right. So where does your interest in the indigenous peoples of colonial Mexico and specifically Oaxaca come from? You mentioned that originally you had intended to, to study Guatemala, right? So how did you end up in Oaxaca? Well, um, my advisor, Nancy Ferris, had been working there for a long time. And uh, she suggested um, that it might be a good place a good place to work, uh, in part because it does have this large and diverse indigenous population and very, very rich um, archives. In fact, I think it has some of the richest uh, provincial archives for the colonial period um, available in Mexico. Um, so uh, it seemed like a really uh, good place to, to begin. Um, and I, I really have kept going back ever since. Um, you know, I, I'm very committed to local history and to making local connections uh, with community members and local scholars. And uh, uh, I feel no need to, to uh, go elsewhere. It's, it's like peeling back a large onion. There are so many layers um, and so many interesting questions and fascinating records uh, to work with. Right, right. And, and this, is, this book is a good example, especially the last chapters of how local developments uh, reflect and influence global uh, developments, right? Yeah. So um, how did you come up with the idea for Since Time Immemorial in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, so many of us as historians frame our research questions in relationship uh, you know, to present contexts. And uh, certainly this is no exception. Um, there were kind of two things that were happening. Um, first was that when I entered graduate school in uh, the late 90s, um, there had been recently, uh, you know, a, a kind of wave of the adoption of customary law into Latin America's, um, the constitutions of many Latin American nations. Uh, these multicultural constitutions, as they came to be known, um, kind of recognized the validity of um, indigenous customary law um, for uh, kind of the resolution of local issues and conflicts. Um, so that fascinated me. Um, and I wanted to understand that process a little bit better. And then, of course, uh, I had um, begun doing research as a first-year graduate student um, in a local collection in Philadelphia that happened to have uh, cases um, from Oaxaca. Um, and the first cases that I began working on um, concerned conflicts over local custom as it pertained to uh, the funding and the labor um, required uh, for uh, Catholic religious celebrations in the 18th century. Um, so uh, these cases kept foregrounding um, this language and these arguments that were grounded in custom. And, uh, you know, that kind of happened to coincide with this contemporary context and um, you know, it, it piqued my interest and mm -hmm. uh, I kind of took off from there. My first book was not about custom, but I began to kind of take note of and keep files of um, cases that uh, really foregrounded custom as an argument as a and as a claim. And mm -hmm. so after many, many years of collecting this information and this data, I felt that it was time to, to put it into book form. Right. So what was your main goal in writing this book? Well, um, I think as I try to do in much of my work, um, I wanted to complicate and nuance our understanding of um, the relationship between indigenous history and, uh, you know, other histories. Um, I think there has been a, a tendency to imagine uh, indigenous history as, um, how shall I say, somehow in opposition to Occidental, Western, European history, um, and uh, to perhaps 
as a corrective in recent years to research it on its own terms. And I think that Hmm. that has been really important. But I think that we do need to think about indigenous communities and um, and polities uh, in relation to others and engage in a kind of dynamic tension with uh, other kinds of institutions and normative systems and languages and ideas about property, labor, social bonds, reciprocity. Um, and mm-hmm. I think as we do that, we kind of push back against a tendency perhaps to imagine uh, and romanticize indigenous communities and the relationship to time to kind of uh, relegate uh, native practice to the past rather than thinking about the ways in which it's constantly being transformed through the agency and the creative appropriation of indigenous peoples of all kinds of forms of knowledge, much of it Mm. foreign, um, and the ways that they're able to do that with an eye to the future and with an eye to transforming their lives um, uh, in positive ways if they can, right? Adapting Mm -hmm. and surviving um, and uh, kind of uh, increasing their access to resources and advantage in uh, a complex imperial society. So before getting into the nuances of the book, can you briefly explain to our audience um, the difference between custom and law? So what exactly is custom? Sure. Well, you know, what custom is has been um, subject to debate uh, (laughs) in uh, European history and legal history, in Latin American history and anthropology, in histories and ethno histories of the regions that we might call the global south in the history Mm -hmm. of Africa, for example, in African history and Mm -hmm. others. Um, You know, it's it's hard to put a simple gloss on the term custom, but um, I would say that, you know, it's broadly understood as um, social practice uh, or it's a it's a normative system that is grows out of social practice that continues through time, right? So Mm -hmm. through social practice as repeated um, and enacted in uh, generally territorially based communities, um, eventually local normative systems emerge and they aren't necessarily codified, um, Mm -hmm. but they are broadly understood within that community um, as as norms. Um, Sometimes they're written down, uh, sometimes uh, they're um, to kind of, um, sometimes they're part of social memory and they're not mm-hmm. written down. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this realm of social practice and mm-hmm. local normativity is what scholars generally refer to as custom. Right, right. So custom enjoys um, this social sanction uh, even before it may be codified into law. Exactly. And there's a very porous relationship between custom and law. And this is where I think the scholarship has shifted. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that um, in some contexts, custom was understood uh, somewhat in opposition to law, Um, that, you know, it was kind of the the provenience of, um, how shall I say, small scale, often rural communities, um, in the case of colonial societies, of native communities. Um, and it was seen in opposition to a more, uh, how shall we say, kind of rational, um, written, uh, codified law. And some scholars had cast custom as a mode of resistance to the imposition of laws from the outside. But um, I think the more and more that people dig into local practice, they're beginning to see that, that, you know, we should consider custom and law in a continuum and that customs sometimes become laws um, and uh, that laws sometimes reflect customs. Um, So uh, we shouldn't think about these two things as uh, diametrically opposed at all, um, but in deep relationship with one another. Right. So the book, covers an ample chronological and geographic span. It consists of an introduction, three parts, and an epilogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the organization is thematic or thematical, but uh, at the same time, the narrative unfolds 
chronologically, and you take the reader from 12th century Spain to central Mexico, and then gradually you delve more and more into uh, local uh, indigenous community in Oaxaca all the way to the 18th century. So among other things, the introduction uh, provides a concise but thorough overview of the historiography or native custom and law in the Spanish Americas, which I think is really helpful to uh, contextualize what comes uh, afterwards. Um, and you, you clearly depart from the traditional kind of more romanticized view of native customs as ancestral vestiges, uh, showing instead that that the customs were formulated and reformulated in response to contemporary challenges at different times throughout the colonial period, and often in the in, in Spanish courts of law, uh, paradoxically. You know? mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you argue that they became an essential aspect of the colonial uh, legal and political system. So before getting into, into the details of, of your um, book, what was the process of researching and writing this book like? Tell us a little bit about your sources, for instance. Sure. Um, you know, as I indicated earlier, uh, this has been a long-term project um, that has, has kind of it unfolded in fits and starts as I ran across uh, sources um, in the archives in Oaxaca um, and in Mexico City, but then also as I um, thought about or revisited uh, sources um, that are kind of staples of Mesoamerican ethno-history, like the Codex Mendoza, Relaciones mm -hmm. Geográficas, um, Inquisition Cases, um, and other kinds of sources. So, uh, you know, I think um, the process of researching it in some ways began with the archive and with Oaxaca. I started in that locality and I got very interested in the genealogy of this category um, of colonial law custom. And, uh, you know, I kind of followed the source base and, um, what I, I wanted to do was to think about, you know, the origins of custom in medieval, in that medieval European legal revolution that I write about in chapter one, um, to imagine how it informed uh, processes of military expansion um, in the Iberian Peninsula uh, during the medieval and late medieval period, and how that um, became part then of the expansion of, uh, you know, the crowns of Castile and Aragon into um, the Americas and how it became a tool for managing ethnic diversity as it had been in the Iberian Peninsula. But of right. course, the context of the Americas was new. Um, so I wanted to be certain to maintain an eye or keep an eye on the roots of custom um, because those Iberian roots were so important and critical to the way that it was taken up um, in the Americas, and then to see, the, you know, to look into the ways in which it was transformed um, in, you know, the quote-unquote new world. Other key sources um, for helping me to understand that process were missionary sources, um, because in many ways the missionary friars were on that front line of that process of translation and the production of new forms of knowledge that drew upon indigenous uh, kind of moral um, codes, rhetorical practices, and ideas about the sacred. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I conceive of native custom really as a product of translation mm -hmm. and of that deep intercultural interaction that happened in the 16th century. So missionary sources were also absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. So in, in the first part of the book titled Legal and Intellectual Foundations, 12th through 17th Centuries, uh, you provide a strong foundation for the rest of the book. First, you establish how the, the Spanish concept of costumbre or custom came into being and how it was uh, eventually transplanted to the Western Hemisphere. You explain, for instance, that the Castilian juridical category of costumbre developed in the peculiar multicultural context uh, of medieval Iberia. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how... Um, concept, oh, sorry, how, how custom is conceptualized in the Siete Partidas? Sure, of course. Well, you know, the Siete Partidas, 
Partidas is so famous um, for mm -hmm. obviously scholars of uh, medieval and early modern Spain, but also for the Americas because it, it remained a really important reference point um, for litigants and jurists and uh, judges and legal agents um, throughout uh, the colonial period in Latin America and even into the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so its imprint can be found in um, legal archives and judicial archives all over um, all over Latin America. So uh, yes, the Siete Partidas is, is important. And what's important to remember too about the Siete Partidas is that um, it is, you know, the first uh, kind of vernacular uh, European legal um, code or compilation of laws, um, and that it was a product of intense intercultural interaction. Um, there, uh, you know, is much uh, to be said about uh, the role of um, Islamic law in shaping the Siete Partidas, but also mm -hmm. um, the local kind of fueros or charters um, of the different principalities of medieval Spain in shaping the partidas and other kinds of traditions. So it, in, it, it in itself is a, it, it's a bearer, right, of these um, complex and diverse traditions. Um, and custom uh, features very centrally in the Siete Partidas. And it's, it's a place where um, it's codified in a very clear way. Uh, and um, in that regard, it's perhaps unique in this uh, period of uh, judicial and legal ferment and change in uh, medieval Europe. So mm -hmm. the way that it is uh, uh, defined in the Siete Partidas really emphasizes the importance of territoriality. Um, mm -hmm. So custom is, is rooted in a social group and in a community, but also a community um, that is based um, in a clearly defined territory. Um, and I think that's right. really important, right? That connection between people and land and um, justice uh, is a, a, a very strong relationship um, that uh, continues forward into um, you know, the history of imperial law in the Americas. Um, so it is about, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, social practice, um, that over time, time plays an incredibly important role, too, in defining custom in the Siete Partidas, that over time, uh, you know, takes on that normative force of law in that mm -hmm. locality. And custom is cited as a source of law, which is also very important. Um, right. So it, it really holds this uh, weight as judges are asked to weigh the merits of a case. Um, they are, you know, instructed to take custom very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, one other important component of of uh, costumbre at this early stage is the the idea of the common good, also, right? Yes, that's right. And you know, the Siete Partidas also very much reflects um, the Christian ethos of the period, right? So, hmm. canon law, civil law, and custom deeply inform each other in the hmm. Siete Partidas, and. Uh, these concepts that are so crucial to um, early modern jurisprudence, like um, equity uh, and the common good and the idea of justicia, um, are very mm -hmm. much informed by that ethos. Right. So by the 16th century, uh, you, we have Spanish theologians and philosophers that use this idea of custom to, on the one hand, to kind of acknowledge the sovereignty of indigenous lords or elites, but at the same time, kind of always manifesting a sense of moral, uh, superior moral ground, so to speak. Yes, that's right. And I, I think that there's so much ambivalence in those uh, early manifestations of custom as, you know, as related to the legitimacy and authority of colonial indigenous elites in the 16th century. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I point out in uh, that early, those early chapters is um, that uh, Spanish jurists and theologians um, kept tacking back and forth between, uh, you know, kind of 
acknowledgement and admiration of these markers of, of what they considered civility among mm. uh, the indigenous populations of Mesoamerica, particular central Mexico. Um, yet at the same time, uh, you know, trying to situate these societies, which uh, bore some resemblance to their own, yet were also quite distinct, trying to situate them in a kind of hierarchy of cultures um, uh, with this kind of, you know, universal assumptions about uh, what what makes, um, you know, a society uh, worthy of that, that term civilization or civility. Um, so, you know, at once you, you see in their writings praise, but then you also see, um, you know, condescension, uh, doubt, uh, critique, and it's this constant tacking back and forth um, in an attempt to to make sense of where uh, indigenous peoples of the Americas fit into this this European scheme. Right, and still this this kind of what you what you at some point call a colonial legal consciousness emerges from this uh, interaction between the Spanish missionaries on the one hand and the indigenous elites, and this is this is something that you. Uh, study both in central Mexico and in Oaxaca. Um, tell us or tell our, our audience uh, how essential the, the process of translation was uh, and to what extent or what were the types of challenges that um, both Spaniards and, and natives faced in, in, in this attempt to make sense of each other's concepts and, and views? Right. Well, you know, there's such a rich literature and this is, you know, something that I am, I'm a great beneficiary of, you know, my, the book is, is rather wide ranging in its source base. Um, and, you know, I was, I have been blessed to be able to draw upon rich historiographies on these, these questions and, you know, the issue of, um, you know, the evangelization of, of indigenous peoples in America in the Americas, uh, has been addressed by, you know, uh, a wide range of, of excellent scholarship. So I had a lot to draw upon. Um, and, you know, uh, scholars like Louise Burkhart, um, you know, my own advisor, Nancy Ferris and others have, uh, you know, with great um, kind of sensitivity and, and uh, just attention to so much ethnographic detail have really thought about how um, to, uh, rather distinct systems of understanding um, the world and the cosmos and, and uh, really the relationship of human beings to one another um, kind of came into contact uh, during this period um, and through this process. It was a violent process, but it was also a process that entailed a lot of dialogue and translation and back and forth. Um, and, you know, as this kind of new set of knowledges um, is being produced about, you know, what it means to uh, lead a good and moral life, um, what it means to, uh, how marriage should be understood um, and what its norms uh, were um, and all kinds of other questions, you know, how families should be organized and how uh, communities should self-govern um, that, this came out through um, this process of, of linguistic translation, but it was also kind of a cultural and ethnographic translation. So fundamental concepts that undergirded um, Christianity, but also uh, European law, the use commun, and the boundaries between you know, religion and law were so porous. And that's something we have to keep in mind as well um, as early modernists. Um, these really you know, come to the fore in this process of, of translation. Mm -hmm. um, so in part two of the book titled Good and Bad Customs in the Native Past and Present, 16th through 17th centuries, you discuss um, how missionaries and acculturated elite natives uh, assessed uh, pre-Hispanic customs as good or bad uh, in relation to Christian principles and natural law and so forth. And you explain, for instance, that certain indigenous religious and sexual practices were criminalized. Um, so in order to illustrate this, you, you use, as you mentioned before, two of the most, uh, you know, often cited uh, sources from the, from the 16th century. One of them is the Codex Mendoza, 
and the other one is the relaciones geográficas, specifically the ones from Oaxaca. Tell our audience how these two sources uh, in which uh, one way or another native uh, people participated in, in whose production native people were involved. Um, how do they portray uh, native custom um, in very different ways, right? I mean, whereas in the in the Codex Mendoza, uh, there is an emphasis on the on the virtuous aspect of uh, native custom in the relaciones geográficas de, de Oaxaca. By contrast, there is there seems to be a much more ambivalent, sometimes an overly critical and negative. Uh, portrayal of pre-contact institutions and, and practices. Yeah. Yes, these two sources, you know, as you point out, are, are staples in Mesoamerican ethnohistory. And they're also, you know, probably the most uh, important um, surveys of custom, imperial surveys of custom or surveys of custom that are produced in that imperial context um, in the 16th century. And the Codex mm -hmm. Mendoza um you know, there's been great scholarship on it. I focus on part three of the codex. The codex is divided into three parts. Um, right. And the third part addresses uh, kind of the question of daily life in Tenochtitlan um, during the pre-Hispanic period. It's a colonial view of, um, of pre-Hispanic practice. And the whole, you know, one of the, the purposes of the Codex Mendoza, um, as has been argued um, in the most recent scholarship is to present uh, Tenochtitlan as a kind of model of indigenous civility, um, that it was a kind of idealized polis along the lines of um, this kind of universal notion of civility that Europeans are attempting uh, to impose during this period. And so, uh, you know, the way that the, this third part of the Codex Mendoza is presented is through um, the kind of life stages um, that a person would go through uh, living in the city. And it emphasizes the centrality of the city's institutions, its schools, its courts, its families in inculcating youth and eventually its citizenry with good customs. Um, mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's speaking to European expectations um, of, uh, of what civility should be and how custom and customary practice um, uh, produce uh, civility. And what's interesting about the source as well is its provenience. Um, you know, unlike the Florentine Codex, for example, which is another uh, classic kind of survey of customs. There's a lot about custom and justice and legal institutions that we can find in the Florentine Codex. But unlike the Florentine Codex, the Codex Mendoza was produced by indigenous artisans, the Tlacuiloque, or painters scribes um, right. of the city. And these were members of the artisan class. So they were commoners. Um, and those, you know, the interlocutors who worked with the Franciscan friars who produced the Florentine Codex were of the nobility. So it provides, you know, a kind of uh, perspective from that kind of upper stratum of commoners, um, which is, I think, really interesting. Um, so it, it certainly, um, with a Spanish audience in mind, right, it presents a very positive view of indigenous pre-Hispanic custom from the perspective of those artisans. And it doesn't appear that there was too much Spanish oversight um, in its production. In contrast with the Relaciones Geográficas that are produced much later in the 1580s. And mm. um, at this point, attitudes toward indigenous uh, culture and custom had changed among Spanish administrators and even missionary friars. Um, there was a more kind of pessimistic and dark and critical view. And uh, even though the Relaciones Geográficas, which were a royal survey, not only of custom, but also of um, kind of history, indigenous history, uh, resources, land tenure, um, a very kind of broad uh, survey of indigenous life. Um, you know, that, that survey involved the kind of oversight of um, many local officials who were Spaniards. So it was kind of a co-production 
um, on the part of, you know, local priests, um, magistrates, uh, and other Spanish officials, along with indigenous informants. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the part of the survey that addressed pre-Hispanic custom um, tended to really emphasize uh, what Spaniards considered to be the idolatrous religious practice practices right. of um, native peoples and also polygyny, um, which, uh, you know, Spanish officials were very keen on eradicating. Um, and one of the big arguments in that er- this early part of the book is that by targeting polygyny as a bad custom and working to sort of forcibly eradicate it, um, you know, the Spanish really undermined the foundation of um, Mesoamerica's political structure uh, in these, um, you know, central regions of Mexico, but also in Oaxaca. Um, So, and that, you know, that is in line with uh, arguments made by Ross Hasig, for example, on his, uh, in his book dedicated to what he calls polygamy and the rise and fall of the Aztec empire, but also arguments that people like Camilla Townsend have made about the importance Mm. of polygyny in structuring political life. And even, um, you know, importantly, concepts of property and land holding. Right. Yeah. So that, that's that's a great example. And actually, you know, the the Spanish and 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 you, for instance, you utilize some um, Inquisition records, uh, but also indigenous authorities sometimes uh, apply this concept of old law with regards to polygyny. A concept that had already been already been used in Iberia in medieval times for with regards to Muslim and Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, and actually you you mentioned that that this uh, concept continued to be used in Oaxaca into the 18th century, right? Yes, that's right. So the the you know kind of um, discursive framework that uh, the Spanish used Inquisition um, Inquisition. Uh, you know, officials of the Inquisition, but also other kinds of Spanish authorities framed the practice of polygyny in terms of the old law, right? The law before Christianity um, and Spanish law came to the Americas and they cast it in a bad light. And this was taken up, as you point out, by local indigenous authorities as a means of kind of undermining the legitimacy of their rivals. And I think mm-hmm. that this is important as well, that that these Spanish normative categories um, came to be used by indigenous leaders, authorities, and, and litigants and other actors, you know, for their own ends and to uh, pursue whether political rivalries or other kinds of rivalries with, um, you know, neighboring communities. Um, so it, it kind of, it created a, a new framework for conflict um, among indigenous actors. Mm-hmm. So in part three of the book, um, you take the readers to Oaxaca in the 16th, uh, sorry, in the 17th and 18th centuries and analyze a series of cases that were heard at courts of, Spanish courts of first instance. You explain, for instance, that native authorities uh, deployed custom to make claims about common lands or to create new new property, new communal property rights, um, and often to the detriment of caciques or, or uh, native leaders, right? Yeah. Um, and then you explain that that um, European categories of natural law, such as tyranny, consent, uh, servitude, and others, uh, take on new meanings in this context. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in many ways, um, this third part of the book uh, feels like the beating heart of the book for me, just because of, you know, the long um, periods of archival work that I, I have done in Oaxaca over the years. And, uh, you know, I really conceived of this last part in three pieces, which was to address these practices of landholding, labor, and self-governance during the 18th century, which, you know, in that broader kind of Atlantic frame, um, 
historians have called the Enlightenment. And, you know, scholars like Bianca Premo have really unpacked mm-hmm. what the Enlightenment means or meant. Um, and uh, for ordinary people in Spanish America, and also how ordinary people uh, participated in the making of these, these Enlightenment discourses, which very much shaped notions of justice and law and practice on the ground. Um, so, uh, you know, this provides a, a real backdrop um, for my work. And, uh, you know, with regard to the land disputes, you know, one thing that really interested me, and this again is shaped in part by Oaxaca's contemporary context, um, was how much conflict among indigenous communities was generated um, by uh, disputes over boundary mm-hmm. lands, uh, lands, common lands, um, you know, outside or beyond areas that were generally cultivated and beyond um, the residential nucleus of communities um, where, uh, you know, people from different communities kind of came into contact with one another as they used those boundary lands, generally for grazing, but also for the collection of, um, you know, natural resources that were supposed to be available to everyone there. Um, these uh, boundary lands became lightning rods for conflict um, in the 18th century, as we see um, livestock, the livestock ec- economy expand and the need for grazing land increase. Uh, you know, an increase in, in population um, and other kinds of matters. There was also this also this titling program that the crown had introduced, the Composiciones de Tierras, that uh, required communities to um, kind of, you know, put down on paper and fix uh, their land claims. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of these disputes and these conflicts and and tried to understand the strategies that local people were using um, to uh, kind of make the best out of this situation. And um, one thing that surprised me is that, you know, in this context of intense conflict over the boundary lands, there were actually moments of uh, cooperation among Indigenous communities who tried to find ways to jointly claim boundary lands and to um, kind of instantiate uh, new customary practices and ways of claiming land tenure um, in those boundary lands um, in order to avoid costly litigation, but also to kind of um, join together in conflict uh, or to kind of protect themselves against powerful outsiders um, who were uh, also um, local caciques or local indigenous um, elites. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one example of how custom wasn't uh, a kind of static normativity that, uh, you know, indigenous people carried with them since time immemorial, but rather something that they were constantly reformulating and reproducing and recreating um, as they faced new challenges um, in this imperial context. Mm -hmm. And then with regard to some of those categories that you were talking about, um, you know, I, I was interested since, you know, law is fundamentally a kind of discursive and linguistic normative system. It's, it's a, a language for ordering the world, right. Which has a real impact on people's lives and that people use, um, to, uh, create effects in the world. Um, I, I was attentive to the language that surrounded customary claims and it certainly does change. Um, although those categories, um, like, uh, you know, um, for example, tyranny and other categories of natural law were used in the 16th century. They they take on new meaning in the 18th century um, as obviously social life changes and the context changes. And also um, as those categories take on new meaning in this enlightenment context. Um, so, uh, you know, native people and litigants and authorities and their legal agents were very tuned into those transformations and were able to use that language for their own purposes and and uh, to their own ends. 
Right. And, and there is an interesting uh, process that kind of coincides with these changes, which is that there is an increasing presence of commoners in indigenous town councils, right? So they, there seems to be kind of a, a growing power of, of the commoner class, so to speak, at the expense of the traditional uh, caciques and, and the more powerful elites. Yes. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Go go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And that was especially true um, in the Nudzawi or Mixteca region where indigenous society was more stratified than it was in, let's say, the the region of the district of Vialta, the Sierra Norte, where um, caciques were not quite as powerful. So that's mm -hmm. another um, issue that I, I did have to contend with in the book is um, the marked regional diversity within Oaxaca itself. Oaxaca is such um, a remarkable place in that it's relatively small, yet it concentrates so many different ethnic groups um, in so many different kinds of geographies and topographies and ecologies. Um, so uh, there are significant variations um, from place to place about uh, concerning land tenure and social organization. Right. And that is kind of a, a growing emphasis on on contractual obligations, right? Or let's say that, um, you know, uh, customs of self-governance uh, and labor uh, began to be fixed on 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 paper and signed uh, in order to legitimize these these customs. That's kind of a new development also of the 18th century, right? Yes. I mean, certainly there were written agreements in which, uh, you know, between communities, among communities, um, between Spanish authorities and indigenous authorities. We see those in, in earlier centuries as well. But I, I think that the, the, the pace quickens in the 18th century. And um, right. we see older customs uh you know, being discounted in favor of customs that are enshrined in, in contractual form um, in these um, notarial genres of convenios or written agreements um, and uh, simple contracts. Um, so that for a custom to be valid, you know, it needs to be accompanied by a piece of paper um, or that it is more valid if it is accompanied you know, by these, by these agreements, by these, these written contracts. Um, and, you know, rather than drawing upon the old warrants for making custom valid, right, which is that we've done this since time immemorial, and these were the customs of our, our ancestors. Um, and, you know, these kinds of primordial obligations that used to constitute, you know, the community. Um, in the contracts, it's, it's a little bit more about, well, um, you know, uh, this labor, so for example, uh, in chapter seven, I, I follow disputes about customary labor that were mm -hmm. enshrined in contracts. Um, you know, these, these forms of labor have been performed, you know, during the necessary amount of time, according to Spanish law, which is required for a custom to become valid. Um, there are all of these arguments that are much more tied to Spanish procedure and legal practice um, and to, uh, you know, the clauses in the contract itself. So custom has this um, more contractual uh, foundation than it does um, these older uh, foundations based on, uh, you know, more ancestral forms of reciprocity uh, and, um, you know, timelessness. Another aspect of of these uh, of how how native custom evolves in the 18th century that you highlight in the last chapters is how much uh, more emphasis is gradually placed on on economic utility as opposed to just uh, other kinds of communal interest, um, and this kind of aligns well with uh, similar developments. It's kind of uh, happening at the same time that other uh, enlightening uh, ideas are thriving across colonial society. So can you tell us a little bit about this growing emphasis on, on economic uh, utility as opposed to any other considerations? Because this is part of the, of the, of the clash between, or the tensions 
uh, within and across uh, indigenous Oaxacan communities. Uh, and it's, uh, it's one of the ways in which the traditional power of the, of the caciques or the elites was undermined, right? That's right. Yes. So, you know, in, um, in my examination of uh, self-governance, practices of self-governance and the ways in which local authorities manage communal treasuries and resources, um, you know, and the ways in which community members make claims based on custom, the validity of a custom was all often measured um, according to its economic benefit um, for uh, the community. And, uh, you know, this is something that certainly, I think, accelerates in the 18th century. This is something also that um, Brian Owensby, who is a, a, a legal scholar, um, has argued as well, that we see that rhetoric or that discourse of economic utility um, coming uh, to the fore in litigation. And, you know, I would argue also in these, these customary claims. We also see um, an emphasis on the ability of local authorities to engage with courts and the Spanish legal system um, as uh, an important uh, warrant for customary claims as well. So um, in uh, conflicts that we see um, among different authorities who are laying claim to leadership positions in local communities, you know, their ability to, uh, to marshal community resources, to pursue litigation, um, and to pursue uh, local claims in courts becomes increasingly important. So there's a kind of orientation of these uh, customary practices related to land, labor, and local governments, governance, um, you know, really getting channeled toward the propagation of uh, legal conflicts. Um, and it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a difficult cycle, right, that we see intensifying in the 18th century. Right. So as you explained at the beginning of the interview, you, you have uh, very close ties with Oaxaca and you have spent a lot of time over there. Uh, in the epilogue, you, you touch a little bit on the long-term effects of, of custom and how it has been reinterpreted over the years. So what are some of the pros and cons of invoking custom in, in today's Mexico or in the more recent, more contemporary history of Mexico? And how do uh, contemporary indigenous communities of Oaxaca deal with uh, the ongoing challenges that they face to their communal rights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think we just have to be reminded that custom is a normative system. And as such, it, it serves the purposes of a kind of social control um, that is, you know, propagated by people with power. And we have to remember that, um, like all communities, indigenous communities have their own hierarchies. And, and one of the um, arguments about uh, well, let me start with the pros. I mean, many have argued that the recognition of the validity of usos y costumbres, which are now called sistemas normativos indígenas in a place mm -hmm. like Oaxaca, is that they kind of insulate the community from uh, outside pressures um, and, you know, the incursions of uh, corporations, you know, multinational corporations who, that are increasingly interested in the resources that sit underneath the lands of indigenous communities, um, but also of um, outside state actors and others um, whose interests might be antagonistic toward that of the communities. But then the critics argue um, that, you know, as normative systems, um, they perpetuate hierarchies and modes of exclusion, gender, is an important one. Um, you know, usos y costumbres uh, is very applicable and, and often invoked in local practices of self-governance and the constitution uh, or the ways in which, um, you know, municipal authorities are elected, who is eligible for certain offices, etc. And women um, have for a long time been excluded from the most powerful offices. And when they do serve, they tend to be 
relegated to positions that align with their gender and with gender norms in the community. So they might um, have a position related to matters of health or education, for example, but they might not be the president or the municipal secretary who are the more powerful positions, the most powerful positions in the community. Um, You know, this, of course, varies from place to place. and, And, you know, as time goes by, we do see more women entering into those positions. But that has been, I think, a real problem with usos y costumbres. Another example is um, the relationship between uh, core areas of indigenous municipalities and smaller settlements that are uh, considered to be dependencies. Often people in those smaller settlements are kind of excluded um, from the higher offices of um, the municipalities that make big decisions that affect their lives. So, you know, I think I don't want to impugn custom um, as, uh, you know, a a detriment to um, indigenous life. I don't, that's not the point I'm trying to make, but what I'm trying to argue is that we need to be careful not to romanticize it and not to separate it from what law is and what its purposes are, right? Um, That is to serve as a kind of normative system. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much uh, for having written such a wonderful book and also for your explanations today, Yana. Oh, thank you, Joaquin. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Can you tell us a bit before I let you go about your ongoing digital humanities project? Sure. Yeah. So um, my power of attorney project uh, kind of addresses an ongoing interest of mine in um, how how indigenous social networks are constituted through imperial space. Um, You know, one of the the kind of stubborn um, assumptions that, you know, know, some scholars have, and even, you know, more broadly speaking, uh, you know, within probably popular culture is this idea that indigenous communities are somehow um, at a remove from either urban centers or centers of um, institutional power. And, uh, you know, this is especially true in Oaxaca, which is has been cast as a kind of land apart, right? That is somehow mm-hmm. separate from uh, the rest of Mexico. And uh, again, a kind of repository of indigenous tradition that is kind of cast as timeless and ancestral. And, um, what I tried to do was use letters of attorney, which are a very common notarial genre um, in which uh, indigenous actors, um, whether litigants or authorities give power of attorney to a legal representative to pursue their cases um, in courts that are distributed, you know, all over Mexico, but even in Spain. Um, And they, you know, these legal agents can be Spanish lawyers, titled lawyers, but they can also be informal representatives that come from the community itself. Um, And if you kind of look at the the spatial distribution of the communities and the legal agents and the courts that they travel to, you know, and you kind of map that, you begin to realize how well-networked these, you know, allegedly remote, rustic, you know, quote-unquote rustic communities were um, and uh, connected to uh, powerful institutions um, in urban centers, in colonial centers, and even in the metropole. So uh, that's ongoing, and I hope to incorporate it into a larger project that's tentatively titled Infrastructures of Native Justice, um, mm-hmm. Objects, Spaces, and Roots. Nice. And this will be an open access uh, project, I want to well, remind the audience. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> that's the <laughs> Sounds good. So are you considering any other projects? Are you are you working on any other books as of now or are you taking kind of a, a, a more relaxed approach? <laughs> you know, I'm interested having worked um, with all of these sources uh, that are so textual um, for this project on indigenous law and custom. I want to kind of move away from these texts and think about um, material culture uh, and its place in imperial justice, especially with regard to indigenous justice. So that's the direction I'm going in now. I I participated in a 
a forum in the Law and History Review with Kalyani Ramnath, Bianca Premo, San Ravensberger, and Lori Wood on um, the spaces, everyday spaces and materials of imperial law. And mm-hmm. that has really inspired me to think about these other elements um, that, uh, you know, produced Native justice uh, during the colonial period. So, well, sounds like a fascinating project, actually. Well, I hope so. Yes, it's in its early stages. All right, Jana. It has been a pleasure to chat with you, and thank you very much for sharing with the audience of New Books Network some of the nuances of your book. Likewise. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Joaquin. I really appreciate it. Good luck with your project, and I look forward to interviewing you again soon about this material culture as it relates to um, the issues that you have been exploring so far. And to all of you, many thanks for listening to New Books Network. Kindest regards, and I'll say goodbye for the present.